I am Solis Veritas, and this is the Defending American Exceptionalism podcast. It appears many Americans have forgotten what makes America exceptional. This podcast is here to remind them. The greatest country on earth has been so successful that it may now be suffering from that very success. The lack of any real suffering in recent decades has made it all too easy for people to criticize and malign the greatest country ever to have been established by man, while sitting comfortably in their centrally heated homes, watching big screen TVs, interacting with their fellow men primarily through social media, and experiencing life events via virtual reality video games. This podcast is meant to serve as a reminder and tutorial on the unique and special form of government our founders created, and to explain the real history, purpose, and structure of America. It hopes to offer a counter to the falsities gaining popularity in the past 20 years, probably even longer, that America is no better than any other country, no different and no more honorable. Indeed, the very qualities of our country and her people that make it greater under attack in a way that threatens the very foundation on which it balances. Keyboard warriors, echo chambers, and virtue signaling with no substance are all the means by which individuals hide from any thoughtful discourse with their neighbors and make nearly impossible any honest, intellectual discussion of the issues of the day. If you'd like to engage in those types of discussions, stay tuned. This episode is being recorded on March 1st, 2023, Episode 94, Federalism's Role in Protecting Our Liberty and Our Nation. Where the last episode discussed the Fourth Amendment and its dual purposes of protecting some elements of our privacy while also restraining government power, in this episode, I wanted to discuss when we do consent to government power, at what level of government should we be granting that authority? We are a diverse nation, and though we have not always been as diverse as we are today, we were a relatively diverse nation even at our founding. Keeping in mind that diversity is not always about race or gender or religion, but about an overall culture and way of life. No doubt, today life in Southern California is different than life in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, and life in the Panhandle of Florida is different, heck, even from other parts of Florida, but undoubtedly from somewhere like Massachusetts. Common religious, weather, industry, dialect, citizen pastimes, all of it varies from place to place. As such, the laws that are applicable and preferred by those who reside in a particular area may differ. Federalism recognizes that our individual states and the people in them have rights. Indeed, they have all rights and authority not specifically granted by them to their federal government in the U.S. Constitution. That said, after the failure of the Articles of Confederation, our first attempt to form a nation built on federalism, but failing to provide a sufficiently powerful national government to hold us together, it is clear that some powers must indeed rise or reside at the national level of government to keep the nation unified. But our day-to-day lives were never to be controlled and dictated by that national government in Washington, D.C. The Tenth Amendment reads, The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. Though not expressly creating a federalist system using that term, that is exactly what the Constitution had done, as confirmed by this amendment. And more than just preserving power for the states, a federalist system offers another benefit. A national government that should not be overburdened with responsibility for every aspect of law and policy on both the domestic, on the primarily domestic front. Being able to concentrate on those things that are inherently national, securing our borders, defending us from outside attack. In other words, being able to focus on priorities that affect all Americans, 
is essentially what the federal government is intended to do. Where some have argued that federalism is less needed in today's America, given the integration of so much life, the regular movement of people place to place, state to state, and claimed mild differences in culture, such a conclusion appears erroneous as we watch more and more division, not unity, based on attempts to force all of the nation to accept changes in cultural norms and other political priorities by thrusting them onto the national stage and seeking federal, not state or local action. From transgender policy to abortion, to educational curricula, to police reform, and so on, differences of opinion among Americans are growing, or at least there are large segments of the population concentrated in certain areas that have one position or another, espousing opinions not held by people in other locations. The breakdown in public discourse, the very thing that led me to start this podcast, is not the result of too much federalism, but too little of it. Debates do not exist in true form anymore. One opinion is deemed correct and is to be forced on us all by federal policy or fiat. But imagine how much more polite and productive discussion of issues likely would be if these debates more often were had not among people spread far and wide across the nation, but among neighbors, co-workers, local businesses, and others who personally know one another, or at least are likely to pass one another on the street, in the grocery store, in church, or at a local ball game. To be fair, civility is losing ground even among these local interactions, but to the extent we have impliedly consented to discussion of the policies that will impact us the most, more on the federal level and in a way that ultimately prohibits local action and face-to-face discussion, the more self-governance we give away, the less control we have, and the less accountable our elected and unelected officials become. More importantly, as we allow our federal government to stray further from its enumerated and limited powers, we the people become less able to stop further expansion of that power. Let's take a look at exactly what our federal government was given the authority to do. As Congress is the branch to enact laws, Article 1, Section 8 is the clearest list of what issues and topics fall within the legal purview of our national government. Here is that provision. The Congress shall shall have power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises, to pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. But all duties, imposts, and excises shall be uniform throughout the United States. To borrow money on the credit of the United States. To regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and with the Indian tribes. To establish a uniform rule of naturalization and uniform laws on the subject of bankruptcies throughout the United States to coin money, regulate the value thereof, and of foreign coin, and fix the standard of weights and measures, to provide for the punishment of counterfeiting the securities and current coin of the United States, to establish post office, offices and post roads, to promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries, to constitute tribunals inferior to the Supreme Court, to define and punish piracies and felonies committed on the high seas and offenses against the law of nations, to declare war, grant letters of mark and reprisal, and make rules concerning captures on land and water, to raise and support armies, but no appropriation of money to that use shall be for a longer term than two years, to provide and maintain a navy, to make rules for the government and regulation of the land and naval forces, to provide for calling forth the militia to execute the laws of the Union, suppress insurrections, and repel invasions, to provide for organizing, arming, and disciplining the militia, and for governing such part of them as may be employed in the service of the United States, 
reserving to the states, respectively, the appointment of the officers and the authority of training the militia according to the discipline prescribed by Congress. To exercise exclusive legislation in all cases whatsoever over such district, not exceeding 10 miles square, as may, by session of particular states and the acceptance of Congress, become the seat of the government of the United States, and to exercise like authority over all places purchased by the consent of the legislature of the state in which the same shall be, for the erection of forts, magazines, arsenals, dockyards, and other needful buildings, and to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers and all other powers vested by this Constitution in the government of the United States or in any department or officer thereof. Note, there is no mention of education, no mention of abortion, no mention of zoning regulations for land, no mention of environmental protection, no mention of housing, no mention of regulation of employment, and the list goes on. This list of power granted to Congress, however, is clearly focused on foreign and international concerns and in keeping the states unified in ways that if they weren't under the same rule, there would be problems. For example, we don't want or need a trade war among our various states. So where has our Congress gotten all of its authority that it acts on today? Primarily, that authority has been read into the several of the clauses I read to you, namely that Congress can tax to provide for the, quote, general welfare, and that it can regulate commerce among the several states and make laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution these powers. Or, but with the Founders' concerns that the federal government be a limited one, it is simply improper to read these phrases to provide blanket authority for Congress to act on any issue it chooses, or any issue can, that can somehow be said to have some minute, indirect effect on interstate relations or foreign relations. So much of the expansion of our federal government's power has come in the form of court interpretation of the Commerce Clause, that right of Congress to regulate commerce among the several states. But does the mention of commerce really lend itself to the expansive realm our court decisions have given it? The idea that Congress, and not the individual states, should regulate both foreign and interstate commerce is a good and necessary one. The nation needs to have a federal government that can negotiate trade treaties with other nations and establish import laws from them. A collection of state laws impacting foreign commerce would be a mess. And where it was feared, and as had happened already to some extent, states imposing unnecessary trade barriers to goods from one another was a, a problem and a mess. The idea that this newly formed federal government should have authority whenever the commerce involved was between or among states is logical and necessary. But where the framers were looking to physical trade of goods, the definition of commerce in today's jurisprudence applies to nearly any activity having any economic or financial element at all that touches in any way any person who might happen or good that might happen or service that might happen to cross a state border. To be sure, the growth of a global marketplace, online commerce, and ease of shipping goods has converted more commerce into either foreign or interstate but there are still some things that should be treated as intrastate and left to regulation only by the state in which they occur. A review of the meaning of the term of the provision commerce at the time of its drafting is instructive. The common understanding of commerce would have been limited to the sale, trade, exchange, or transport of goods, which sadly at that time included goods or people because of the slavery that existed in the nation. It was not understood to include agriculture or manufacturing. In other words, the term commerce did not encompass all things economic. Here is a brief summary, however, of what the Commerce Clause is said to encompass today. 
perhaps beginning in the 1940s, with the cases of United States v. Darby in 1941, Wickard v. Filburn in 1942, and the United States v. Southeastern Underwriters in 1944, commerce took on a different character. It was in Darby that the court upheld enactment of the Fair Labor Standards Act, setting minimum wage, overtime, and other standards for employment. In Wickard, Congress established limits on the production of wheat. Roscoe Filburn, a farmer, was growing wheat on his own property solely for his own use in feeding his livestock. He was subjected to penalties for growing more than the limits adopted by Congress. When challenging the congressional action as not being within the the federal government's Commerce Clause powers, because his actions were not interstate, he wasn't even selling the wheat to anyone outside of his farm or using it outside of his farm, his challenge was unsuccessful, as the court went to great lengths to concoct a theory that by growing his own wheat, Filburn had an effect had an effect on interstate commerce, because if he and others like him were all permitted to grow wheat for their own use, it would substantially affect the wheat trade. The Supreme Court explained its odd decision in this case this way. Whether the subject of the regulation in question was production, consumption, or marketing is therefore not material for purposes of deciding the question of federal power before us. But even if Apelli's activity be local, and though it may not be regarded as commerce, it may still, whatever its nature, be reached by Congress if it exerts a substantial economic effect on interstate commerce, and this irrespective of whether such effect is what might at some earlier time have been defined as direct or indirect. Similarly, in the United States versus Southeastern Underwriters, this new understanding of commerce evolved, one that would allow federal interference with the regulation of insurance up to the point an industry up to that point of industry viewed wholly as intrastate. As cases continued to challenge congressional authority to regulate, the Commerce Clause was read to give more and more power to Congress over anything that had what a court perceived as a substantial effect on that commerce, even if the transaction or business at issue operated wholly within a single state. These cases looked to the Commerce Clause and read it together with the Necessary and Proper Clause to establish a legal test for congressional power that is almost all-encompassing. So where has that led us? From tax policy to COVID policy to police reform to education and zoning laws to regulation of targeted industries and businesses generally, rightfully or wrongfully, the federal government regulates everything. States enact laws the federal government or certain groups don't like. Our federal officials propose a new federal law. But what if a state's law is right for that state's population? Or what if by allowing different states to try different approaches to problems, we might learn what works or at least what works in certain communities? What if, by the federal government acting and relying on the Supremacy Clause to thwart state efforts, debate, invention, exploration, and creativity are impeded, as there is little reason for a state or local representative to come up with new ideas? What if, in a world where many of our current problems, from supply chains to cybersecurity, are the result of globalization, a resistance to globalization, and with it, federalization, is worth exploring? What if it turns out to be the case that forcing controversial policy down the throats of states whose populations are not ready or endorsing of such changes does more to harm the movement at issue than just letting people find their own way by exercising their own free choice and right to self-governance and suffering the consequences, good or bad? It is true. Some topics, if you believe they need addressing at all, may not work if done only by a single state. Environmental policy comes to mind, as environmental problems do not stop at state borders. But what if that means we should allow groups of states to work together on the issues confronting them and perhaps not confronting other groups of states? Think of issues with smog in big cities or drought in drier climates. To some degree, of course, there are still state policies on these issues. But as with almost every topic I cover in this podcast, 
more and more the federal government seeks to take total control. Some shift back to more reasonable limitation of Congress's Commerce Clause powers did happen during the years of the Rehnquist Court, but the power still allows regulation on nearly any topic in today's political universe. And even that court's decisions allowed for regulation of non-economic activity if such regulation was viewed as necessary for a more general regulation of interstate commerce. And where giant leaps have been taken to expand federal power, only baby steps have ever been taken to rein it back in. As a result, we have a large federal government that we are unable to monitor, where one department or division often doesn't even know what another is doing, and all while increasing our tax burden, taking money away from the states and the people to solve their own problems. It turns out that the biggest threat to our freedom is not necessarily corrupt or unscrupulous politicians, biased mainstream media, biologically insane gender policy, a loss of basic education, although that is a big one, a flawed system, bigotry, welfare programs, tax policy, or any other hotbed issues regularly appearing as headlines in our newspapers, social media, television, radio, or elsewhere, or any other of the issues regularly identified as a threat to our society. But rather, the biggest threat is that we have allowed a federal government to be the overseer we look to to address all of these issues and more. Instead of one person working to enact a local policy or a group of people that best fits that community's beliefs and lifestyle, so many of us have now been trained, albeit probably indoctrinated through the education system, to look to the federal government to force on everyone nationwide a single set of priority beliefs, policy, policies, and preferences. This is not the America our founders envisioned, and it is not an America that is sustainable. The more the federal government takes on everyday priorities, the larger the government grows, the less in touch with the people it becomes, and the more indebted and unable financially to fulfill all these promises it is sure to be. So what is the solution? First, our education system fails to teach our students the importance and role of federalism in a governmental structure, in our system and elsewhere, now and through history. Civics education is clearly lacking, and especially where it is replaced by inaccurate versions of our own history, such as that peddled by the 1619 Project, it results in a citizenry that not only wants the federal government to solve its problems, but that doesn't even realize there are other options, including self-reliance and local action. Whatever happened to all the bumper stickers declaring that all politics was local? As is critical for so many reasons, we must reclaim schools as a place of learning and debate, not a place of indoctrination into a single nationwide platform of social policy, all to be enacted not only federally, but likely globally, if you ask those pushing such policies what their ultimate goals may be. They view as some sort of evil construct of our ignorant and biased founders this concept that a state might choose its own different policies. Second, our news media appears only to focus on state actions when a perception exists that a state is somehow jeopardizing a desired federal policy or harming people in some horrible way. The Supreme Court strikes down Roe v. Wade so that states can choose their own abortion policies, but how awful that they might do just that. Or have federal marches and organizations push to reform or all-out abolish police and wait for the outcry if some towns, cities, and states enact policies protecting and honoring their law enforcement officers, while others disband their police departments. No doubt, COVID presented a possible public health crisis that could have supported some limited temporary federal action. But how many stories were we subjected to about how states were going rogue and doing horrible things as states and local governments made their own decisions whether to mandate masks, open businesses, and allow students to go to school? But the news gets its ratings from salacious scandals and reports of what can be characterized as crazy 
politicians or policies or behavior. So we are constantly subjected to not reporting on the different approaches to the virus that the states took in an objective way, but on the failure to heed the dictates of some federal official. Third, we need to get the federal government out of our bedrooms. Whoever thought and still thinks that any policies related to marriage, sex, abortion, sexual orientation, birth control, or more should be imposed on us from Washington. At least if such policies are enacted at all, they should be by our cities and states where we have a better chance of influencing them. But few politically involved people, and I admit I made this mistake myself early on, can even tell you what their city council or state legislature is doing right now to alter their communities. The focus has been almost singularly federal action. Indeed, when you watch the rise of local politicians, most of the time their rise is to target a federal office rather than seeing the great position and the power that they can hold by the office they have in their cities, counties, and states. That has to change if we are to reclaim the power reserved to us and our states by the Tenth Amendment. As always, thank you for listening. I often feel like a broken record, repeating again and again, it's the federal government that is the problem. Like or hate who is in office in Washington, the policies emanating from that cesspool of politicians are generally poorly written, poorly considered, and overly broad in their reach. Just as the separation of powers of the three federal branches of government provides protection from tyranny, or at least works to do so, the division of power vertically from the federal government down to local ones serves to allow us all more freedom to engage in the process of governing ourselves. All too often, however, many of us choose not to participate, or to participate only on the federal level. Even our local elected officials are often eyeing federal office. And it is clear that we care less or no less about our local and state politics when the different voter turnout is compared between presidential election years and non-presidential election years, when undoubtedly a number of local and state elections are taking place that are important and should be a focal point of voters. It is not mandatory that any person choose to participate or even care about the policies enacted by the actions of his government. But our founders set out to ensure we all could do so. And we have the right to do so. And we must protect that right. As Alexis de Tocqueville observed, with the most care and skill, power has been broken into fragments in the American township so that the maximum possible number of people have some concern with public affairs. Next episode, I will discuss some of the more important policy debates brewing in our state and local communities. If I'm going to ask everyone to pay more attention and to try to bring more power back to those governments that are closest to us, this seems a good way to encourage that local attention and participation. As a bit of a preview, and if you think states no longer matter or are not really that different, consider a couple recently reported proposals. The first is an ongoing and relatively serious discussion between the states of Oregon and Idaho. For Idaho to gain a large portion of Oregon's lands, where current Oregon residents are so dissatisfied with Oregon state politics that they wish to be governed by a more in-line system in Idaho. Or at least one proposal related to policing in Chicago that would impose the costs of that city's police force squarely on the backs of private businesses because crime is so out of control in the city, it can't, it can't effectively field a police force, or so the claim goes. Next week should be interesting, to be sure, and I'm excited to do the research for it to see what we can do to self-govern at the local and state level. Until next time, stay free, be brave, search for truth, defend our Constitution, and God bless America. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a five-star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you can share the podcast with just one person, we can continue to further the entire purpose for it to encourage real discourse in society about the state of our nation 
as well as the state of our states and our local communities. If you wish to help this podcast continue, you can contribute to support it by going to anchor.fm backslash solus-veritas and clicking the support button. The Defending American Exceptionalism podcast is written and produced by Solus Veritas. Original music by Canticum Octar. Special thanks to Morales' Scepter. Copyright 2023.